Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That's our brand new subscriber section. So we have officially retired the print magazine. We we fought the fight as long as we could, but the magazine is now long gone and it has been replaced by the wonderful Counterpunch Plus. That subscriber section on the website has all of the same columns and features from the magazine, all of Jeff Sinclair's stuff, all of the great stuff you come to expect from the magazine, plus a whole lot more, including in-depth features and cultural criticism, book reviews, investigative pieces, a whole lot more. Go to Counterpunch Plus, get your subscription, support Counterpunch that way. Listen, independent media is so critical these days, especially now as the politics continues to shift and we have to keep uh, on track with all of the things that we're following. So please do go to Counterpunch, get your subscription. It is a great way to support this project and also independent media. And independent media is what we're going to talk a little bit about later today with my guest. I'm so happy to have him on the show. We're going to talk about, well, a number of topics that will most likely alienate 90 to 95% of the audience. So that will be nice. (laughs) David Roth is with me today. David is the co-founder and co-editor of Defector Media, very, very important media project that you should be subscribing to. He's also the co-host of The Distraction, very important podcast that I like a lot. He is on Twitter at David underscore J underscore Roth. David, welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, get to alienating some people. Oh, absolutely. I like to take a good 95% of the audience and just cut them out right in the beginning. Yeah, so that's um, good. We're going to run down the Angel's bullpen options. Uh, I think that's excellent. Who's best I for think- high leverage situations? <laughs> Oh boy! If I even answer that, we're gonna start. Oh, I know. I, like I've just been bringing it up. I'm kind of cursed because now I'm thinking about it. Uh, now anyway, I'm, I'm now I'm not sure. So uh, here's the question. We're going to talk a little bit about baseball. I know that it's a college basketball tournament right now, and everybody's excited about NBA playoffs, but let's talk about something nobody cares about, and that's baseball. (laughs) Um, Opening day is just around the corner, just a few days from now. I love it. I know you love it. Um, My question for you is why? Why the hell do we continue to love this thing where these billionaire scumbag owners and these Ivy League executive shitheads and uh, running these teams and the bullshit patriotism and the American flags and all of it, all of the things that I think about when I think about opening day. Why am I still so excited? It's a really good question and one that I'm glad we have another week to try to sort out before the actual meaningful baseball starts. To me, I think I'm lucky in a sense to be old enough to remember a time when it was a little bit jankier and a little bit less, uh, as you said, kind of like McKinsey optimized uh, than it is now. And so there was an element of it that felt, you know, there's exploitation has been a part of baseball for as long as baseball has been a concern, uh, as has all the other stuff that you talked about, the pomposity and the bigotry and, you know, all the other uh, stuff that makes America, America. But the, the game itself, to me, as I, somebody who played it as a kid and who still watches it, I think more so than with any sport than I think the NFL, that there's this healthy thing, that there is like a, a game that is real in the pull that it exerts on people. And then there are all these just dingleberries and mediocrities and, you know, sort of like business sketch lords that are leveraging that appeal in a way to make the maximum amount of money. And it's hard to appreciate the game without 
you know, remembering all of that. And yet I think it's a testament to how strong the things that work about it are that it still mostly works for me. That and also like I'm an idiot. Well, that helps a lot, of yes. course. Um, but the question remains, there's something about baseball, at least for me, and maybe this isn't true for others, but it's so visceral. It's like you can, like when you think about it, it's like you can hear the sounds, you can smell it. And somehow, I don't know, for whatever reason, other sports and other activities don't have that pull. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's an outdoor sport. It's a summer sport. I mean, that like there's a lot of stuff about it that is like, you know, essential to it. And essential to its appeal that like is basically accidental that like baseball, the best time to play it is when it's warm outside. The best place to play it is outside. And like basically what we're talking about here in terms of its appeal, like we're kind of dancing around it is like drinking a beer outside on a summer night, for instance, pretty tight, like best place to do that. uh, If you want to be around a few thousand other people and have something to watch is a baseball game like it really has something about it there that like even if the game itself is not uh you know the most thrilling that like the sort of sensory elements of it all uh conspire to make the experience better and there's something temporal about it too right baseball takes a long ass time yeah. it's slow there's 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 time in between the pitches in between the batters you can chat you can go you can go to the bathroom you can do whatever it's like it's a it, it's like an activity rather than something that you have to do. Yeah, it's like a place you should like you don't like whatever get to a bar as soon as it opens wearing like a t-shirt for that bar and just be like I'm staying until it closes. That's it. Like you show up when you want, you have the experience that you want and then you can leave when you want. I don't leave baseball games early, but I've started especially, you know, in recent years the Mets have not been uh, you know, the greatest of attractions uh for live events. I decided that I didn't need to be there for the first pitch. If I could, if it was like a conflict with work or with some other thing, I was like, I'll get there when I get there. Cause I, I bought that ticket on StubHub for $9 and I know I'm going to be able to get my $9 worth of experience from it. You know, even if I got there in the third, I think that like, there is something about baseball, as you said, like that, the languor of it, like, and especially the season is fucking long, dude. Like it's going to start in a week and it's going to end like on November 1st. You know, like that's plenty of time to duck out for a week or two if you want or to like, you know, like watching every inning of every game. Like I have to do this stuff for work and I don't feel obligated to do that. Like I'll find what I missed. There's months of it that don't matter. You know, like it's kind of there's something comforting about that. And there's something comforting about the everyday nature of the game, too, because it's it makes it so low stakes during the season. Right. Because it's like, oh, my God, they lost. I guess it's going to be like 18 hours till they do this again. Yeah. I mean, that's like you never really have to hang on to any of that stuff. And I think in some ways, like the it hasn't been the thing that, you know, like prevented uh, baseball from falling behind football or whatever. But there is like football works on this week long media cycle with all these sort of like rituals of obfuscation and you know like sort of uh rumor mongering and whatever and baseball it's like everything is just kind of collapsed it's just like a a job you know and so like every day like a little bit of stuff happens and you kind of like you wear it and then the next day like yeah like you said you're starting fresh like i haven't had a baseball game actually i'm not going to say that because there have been games like there have been some mets losses where i'd like you know i get a good 48 hours of like hangover out of it but I'm working on that, you know, like I'm I'm halfway through my life and I like to think that in the back half, maybe I can get that number down to like 12. 
A 12-step program would be good. Yeah, that would also be, uh, yeah, I guess maybe I didn't settle on that number accidentally. Hard to say. (laughs) Exactly. So speaking of um, all of the things that uh, we care about when it comes to baseball, our memories, our childhoods, the nostalgia, all of that, one of the big stories this offseason, which of course was easily missed amid the COVID uh, nightmare and the election and everything and well, fascism and Armageddon. Yeah, right. They, all the of broad, the other things. The broad themes of the, the Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, one of those stories that probably was missed was the absolute evisceration of a good chunk of the minor leagues. Um, major League Baseball basically took a major uh, axe to the minor leagues. Many uh, of those organizations have now basically ceased to exist or they've migrated to other lesser leagues. And um, this, of course, has knock-on effects. Lots of communities, smaller communities, small cities and so forth that have now basically lost baseball. So, David, can you help us to understand, well, I guess, why Major League Baseball did this, what their logic is behind it, and what the real reason for it is, you think? So the... I mean, the the broad answer there is that they did it because they didn't want to spend money on uh, developing baseball players, which you would think would be the sort of thing that uh, if baseball teams had to choose to spend money on things, uh, that would be one of the ones that would make sense to spend money on. Uh, But that's been a problem with the league, especially the last few years. There's been kind of like a slow played capital strike happening in the sport where owners are gearing up for what's most likely to be a lockout uh, sometime around the new year this year when the um, collective bargaining agreement expires. And the way that they've sort of uh, performed that seriousness at the highest levels is sometimes they just don't sign free agents uh, or they wait them out. You know, that the idea of what's supposed to keep that market, which has an antitrust exemption, not for nothing, what's supposed to keep it in like, shape is this dynamic tension between like teams don't want to pay players, but they do want to win. At this point, teams are not maybe as worried about paying players or winning and are willing to just sort of, you know, take their share of the TV revenues and deal with it. That's the expensive part of it. The inexpensive part of it is minor league baseball, where players are paid effectively what amounts to less than a minimum wage at most levels of the sport. And that's Baseball is a difficult sport. It takes a long time to learn. Even for players that get drafted out of college, they wind up spending three or four years sometimes in the minors before they get to the majors. High school players will spend longer than that. And it takes that long for a player to figure this stuff out and to learn the fine points of the game. By eliminating these levels and by shortening the draft, which they did dramatically uh, in 2020, they shortened a, what's usually a 30-round, 40-round draft. Uh, basically, it goes until teams stop picking. But they, they shortened that to five rounds. And this year, it's going to be, again, slightly shorter. But they're basically trying to find a way to not have to pay players that don't pan out as big leaguers. Given what they pay those players, you'd think it's a small expense. Given the fact that guys that are drafted late sometimes do become very valuable big league players. Mike Piazza, is, as a Mets fan, is the best example. The guy who was basically taken in the 50th round by the Dodgers as a favor to his rich dad by Tommy Lasorda and who wound up becoming a Hall of Famer. That these things, there's enough of that weirdness built into baseball. And there's enough of that sort of communal aspect that you get in minor league settings that you'd think that it would be a decision that would be easy if you have the good of the game involved. And also, you know, you might get some good players out of it. 
it's just been very difficult to get owners to sort of act in that interest. So as it's become more of an issue in recent years that people are getting sub-minimum wages to play minor league baseball, teams have basically sort of accepted that they're going to need to improve facilities and they are going to need to play these payers, pay these players more. But the way that they're going to keep that revenue neutral is just by having there be, you know, roughly, a, you know, a third fewer players than there used to be and a third fewer teams. And of course, this has absolutely no regard for those communities that would be losing those teams. And in many cases, teams that had been around for decades that had been sort of staples of those communities and uh, not to mention, yeah, not to mention the job losses and all of those other things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cruel. It's, I mean, this is, I focused on the baseball element of it because I think that's the part of it that seems dumbest to me. Is that like you can just see what the obvious interest is? The other thing, though, is that what you lose in terms of you know jobs and in terms of like these communities that have suddenly you know in many cases a publicly funded baseball stadium that they don't have any you know occupant for, is that these teams are TV shows, they're entertainment products first and foremost, like major league teams, and having these minor league teams that are affiliated with that team and in many cases that have been affiliated with that team for a really long time is that you're minting fans in places where you might not otherwise have them. When I was a kid, the Mets had a team, the AAA team was the Tidewater Tides, which is now Norfolk, Virginia. And the Mets had become so associated with that area that David Wright, who became one of the great Mets of my life, grew up in Norfolk and was a Mets fan growing up all through. Like, And there's no reason why he should have been. He was closer, you know, that's closer to Baltimore. Like there's... Plenty. There are major league teams that he could have watched on local television there, but he had a Mets affiliate with like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden playing for it as, as teenagers that he could watch as a kid. And like, it, I mean, it's different because he wound up to, you know, become somebody that played for the team. But that happens all over the place and it will happen less. And I, this is the part of it that frustrates me as a fan is that like, I think that the the health of the game is not an abstract thing that like this is the sort of thing, especially given broader trends in who's playing sports and you know, how much it costs to play sports. If you make it so that baseball is not readily available to people, they will stop caring about it. It's not the sort of thing that's a fait accompli. It's not like, I mean, for you and me, because we're perverts for this stuff, obviously like we don't have any say in the matter, but if for a kid, if you're growing up in a small city, far from a big league stadium and you can go to a game with your parents and both of you guys get in for and you get changed back on a 20 like that is an experience that will either make a fan of you or not but if that experience isn't available then what what's left and i just to finish up that point i wanted to ask you do you think that some of what major league baseball was able to do to the minor leagues is a result of covid because i know that this was a political issue very briefly when it first came up before covid hit i know bernie sanders had made a whole pitch about it with regard i think to the team in burlington vermont yeah the lake probably. monsters yeah so did 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 mlb luck out with the pandemic here to a certain extent i think that there's you know, obviously like a strong element of that disaster capitalist impulse in it. And I think that there's going to be, I think there's going to be a great deal of that even in big league stadiums this summer, because I mean, you can see the way that a lot of the stuff, and it's been weaponized, you know, obviously places other than baseball too, but this idea of, you know, touchless payment and sort of just those jobs of, you know, 
somebody who rings you up when you go get a hot dog or a pretzel or whatever that like at this point if you've taken like it off the board that people can pay with cash then you've removed a whole tranche of fans from the experience just off the bat if you make it so that you're doing touchless payment and you're just sort of picking up a bag at the end of a thing then that's another person's job that they don't get to do anymore and teams are doing that right now and saying that that's a sort of a safety element but i think that you could already see that the the tampa bay rays are one of the I guess forward thinking is a way to describe it. I mean, they are like a hedge fund that with a baseball team attached to it that they had already eliminated basically inexpensive seats from that baseball game experience. They always had a difficult time drawing fans, but they just made the decision that like selling a $12 seat to a game wasn't worth it, that they would charge more for the seats that cost a lot of money and, you know, like just assume that that would make up for it. And again, that's the sort of thing where like, it might be that that, has on some you know revenue statement inside of their front office that may work out i just feel like it screws over a lot of people that maybe just would want to go to a baseball game no doubt about it you've already touched on it but let's elaborate a little bit further on the labor issues uh we are of course about uh what nine months ten months away from a potential labor conflict in baseball that could ultimately shut down the sport what are the major issues um you've already touched on them a little bit but i'd like to just elaborate further because i think that often there's this misconception that we're talking about like millionaires versus billionaires and who cares but there are a lot of very serious labor issues at stake here and in many ways they sort of touch on a lot of issues in other industries as well yeah i mean i think this is the thing about it that I always in talking about it to non fans or whatever. I mean, I generally don't. It's it's obnoxious, but we've already decided to start talking about it. So let's just, as we said, we're 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 pushing out the ninety or ninety five percent that aren't strong enough to make it through this interview. But I think that what is actually happening with this in terms of the the conflict really does mirror the way that the pressure in this sort of like really perverse contemporary capital moment that we have, the way that it impacts everybody else, that what owners want is what they've wanted for as long. I mean, before there was free agency, it's the only thing that MLB's owners have ever wanted, which is to pay the players less and control them more and for longer. And in this case, baseball has this, ostensibly there's no salary cap. The owners have been sort of operating as if there is one. They very much want to have a salary cap so that big teams won't be able to spend more than little teams or, you know, whatever. At this point, every team is owned by a billionaire. So a small market team really doesn't, it's a, a distinction without a difference. It has to do with seats. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with TV deals or their share of revenue from the from the league itself. In this case, that goal remains the goal that owners want to make sure that players don't get to free agency quicker. And that when they do get to free agency, that they're paid less. And the way that the system is set up now is already, you know, that there's sort of, well, let me put it this way. So I'll walk you through the progression of a baseball player's career. They come up and for the first four seasons or three seasons of their uh, career, they are basically paid on a, a minimum scale. This is in the collective bargaining agreement. It's a lot of money for you or me, but it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. At that point, they become, after that period, if they stick around for that long, which most players won't, they'll become arbitration eligible. And then at the end of the year, the team proposes a contract to them and their managed and the player's agent propose, counter proposes one. And then they either settle on something or they actually go to arbitration and the team presents their case for why this guy should be paid less. 
and the agent presents their case for why you should be paid more. And teams have done this. I mean, there's fewer and fewer arbitration cases coming. It's like a notoriously bruising process. Teams don't hold back. It's really worth it for them. And they will burn a personal relationship with a guy that's their employee if it means saving $300,000. Like that's nothing to them. And these are billion dollar organizations. At that point, if you get through arbitration with that salary going up every year, and again, more and more players don't, teams will just decline to offer making the player a free agent, glutting the market, and then they wind up signing for you know less than they would have made, you know, not just in arbitration, but maybe in many cases the year before. If you get all the way through arbitration, you become a free agent or you have that right. Teams can, you know, they can retain you. They can make an offer that uh, attaches some sort of draft compensation to you if you're signed away. But again, the, what a player is experiencing when they enter free agency now is very different than what they experienced even 10 years ago. The market is glutted with these guys that weren't tended contracts on arbitration. Teams are really just reluctant to extend multi-year deals or the sort of deals that would have qualified as market rate five years ago. And so the stars get paid every off season, you know, so the few like superstars that make it to free agency will sign a contract for $12 million, 12 years and $400 million or some crazy, you know, sort of an amount that a superstar would get. The issue is that then underneath that, those tiers of what you would consider like middle-class major league veterans are just not getting the sort of salaries that they used to get. And some of that is, you know, that you can chalk up to these sorts of like soft collusions on the part of, you know, the owners with each other. But a lot of it is just this willingness to run out a team of younger, less well-paid, in oftentimes less qualified players, and just deal with that. And so what the owners are going to be pushing for, in part, in this next collective bargaining agreement, and you've already seen them try it last year and sort of push for it this year, is expanding the postseason and making it easier for teams to get in there without really trying. And if you can make the playoffs in baseball and get your share of playoff television revenue and, you know, give yourself a scratch and wins ticket chance of making the World Series, if you can do that with a team that's effectively a game or two over 500, then there's really no reason for you to splurge on a free agent or even on retaining your own stars. So that anti-competitive element of it is to me the biggest threat in terms of the the health of the game element for any of this. Because I just, if teams aren't trying to be good, then I just don't really see a compelling reason to keep watching for most people. A lot of what you're describing is really a product of certain processes that have gone on in the in baseball and in the industry over the yeah. last several years. Uh, a lot of that having to do with decisions made at the management level. Um, I know you wrote about this, David, I think it was a couple of years ago now about the Astros, the Houston Astros, who were sort of a model organization in Major League Baseball until their cheating scandal. Um, and you talked about sort of the uh, their relation, you know, the McKinseyfication of baseball, McKinsey, the management consultant giant, the global powerhouse that they are. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of McKinseyfication of Major League Baseball and how this sort of management consulting uh, bullshit has taken over the game? Yeah. I mean, so most of what I was just describing there, you know, in terms of finding ways to uh, get do more with less, pay your employees less, value them in ways that uh, 
devalue them for lack of a better way of saying it. All of that is familiar to anyone who's, you know, up on what McKinsey and other big management consultancies do. That's their whole purpose. And in the case of the Astros, who were a team that they tanked out hard, like in what I was saying in terms of just deciding not to win, they did that for years. And as a team that was losing more than almost any other, they were drafting higher in the June draft because it's ranked that way. And so they added some talent that way and they, you know, sort of saved their money. And they brought in a guy named Jeff Luno, who really was a McKinsey consultant before he went to work for the St. Louis Cardinals. And he like basically six Sigma to them or whatever the McKinsey version of that into a, you know, in many ways, like an impressive data processing organization that they knew more about their players and about players on other teams than just about any team did. They studied more things. They processed that in more interesting ways and they learned a lot. They also cheated by banging on a garbage can because they had a camera set up (laughs) that, you know, like basically gave their hitters an unfair advantage during the year that they won the World Series, which I think is ridiculous, but is also perfect for all of this. That all of this talk about like, you know, modeling and AI and big data, like, and it amounted to some clubhouse guy with a bat wailing away on a plastic garbage can behind the dugout. But that's like the alpha and the omega of this mo- of this movement that like the the areas where they're trying to cheat in a business way, everybody could just tips their cap and they're like, these guys, they got the most data. And I'll tell you something else, it's big data. And then when it comes down to like the actual state of play and what they're really doing, it's a fucking guy in a garbage can. We got the biggest data in town. Most people never even seen data this big. All right. <laughs> they wouldn't know what to do with it. In this case, though, I want the one last thing I want to say about the McKinseyification bit of it, though, is that like what that did beyond making the Astros like this lean, efficient machine that like was able to, you know, value players more accurately and, you know, develop players well and everything. It also made it an incredibly bad place to work, not just for people on the team, but for people in the front office that Luno would have McKinsey come in and do like an engagement in the front office. So they would churn people out of the front office every two years. They notoriously underpaid their executives. And the real like last embarrassing moment, the thing that like cost Luno his job was the team so Luno famously as a guy that was, uh, you know, like the most McKinsey of any of the McKinsey guys was really into trying to get bargains wherever he could find them on the player market. And in some cases, this meant a guy, there's a college pitcher who uh, had like basically like a child sex abuse charge from when he was in high school. Uh, and so was not drafted when that story broke. And Luno famously pushed, this is in uh, Ben Lindbergh's book about the team that like, tried to sign him because he was like, this guy is like a third round talent and no one's drafting him. And the owner did put the kibosh on that. He did not get as much resistance when he traded for a guy named Roberto Asuna, who was a closer for the Blue Jays and was serving a 50 game domestic violence suspension. And the Astros traded for him because he was at that time a distressed asset. And so they got him, they brought him in, they were criticized for it, but they used him and they were like, look, you know, it is what it is. He feels bad about it. All the usual stuff you get from a sports team. And by the time the Astros were on their way to the World Series, I believe this was 2019, that um, an executive, a guy, another consultant alumni who had been with the team for a long time, uh, sort of drunkenly 
uh, was yelling in the direction of uh, some women who had reported on the team and had reported critically about the uh, acquisition of Osuna. I was yelling at them. I'm so fucking happy we got Osuna. I'm so happy we have this guy. Which is funny because Osuna had blown a save in that game that they then came back to win. But they had basically become like just a rancid frat. When those stories came out, that guy lost his job and eventually Luna lost his job as part of the sort of cheating story once that got exposed. But I really do believe he'll be back. I mean, like this is his plan with the minor leagues. Like that is the future. That's what owners want. And if it's not him, if it's not him in a front facing front office role, I think that like at this point, that influence is very much in there. Well, we will have more pick-me-ups about baseball yeah. and the wonderful, glorious sort of things happening. Monologue. I actually need to get some water. Do you mind if you give me – can I get a break for that Absolutely no Thank breaks you. allowed. There are no breaks allowed. Work will set you free after the break. All right. We'll be right back. It's the top of the ninth. Josh Kissam is at the plate. The bases are loaded. It's a three and two count. And here's the pitch. Okay. Black baseball. It was a no fat jack. With the weather so hot, who can play like Danny Day? The greatest and the best, like the satchel brother page. Long time and little bump in the Hall of Fame. Like Josh and Buck, be alert. Duck. Everybody was. Devil with Dave, black baseball, they paved the way. 
And we're back chatting with David Roth. Go to the Defector website. Get yourself a subscription. This is a critical contribution to your daily news consumption. Defector is so important. I got my subscription. You should get yours. We'll talk about it in a little bit. David, I want to pick up um, our conversation and talk a little bit about baseball and race. Because, of course, baseball being as central as it is to the, uh, the, the narrative that the United States likes to tell about itself. Self, um, we should probably consider the fact that baseball is uh, arguably the most reactionary and whitest of all the sports with the most checkered past. Um, one of the stories that came out this uh, this offseason that many people may also have not noticed was the fact that Major League Baseball is now going to recognize the Negro League statistics and recognize the Negro Leagues as a quote unquote major league as opposed to something lesser than a major league as they had been. But um, this is part of, I think, baseball's PR attempt here to kind of uh, fashion a different sort of image for itself. Can you talk a little bit about baseball race and about how baseball really presents itself in the 21st century? I think that's a good place to start with it, is that the the arrogance of that, the idea of uh, deigning to recognize uh 30 or 40 years after most of the oldest players in the Negro leagues died, uh, deciding to be like, yeah, actually like you are valid. You are seen is a very, uh, cynical (laughs) and like literally appropriative act on the part of the league. And, uh, it is tone deaf in the ways that baseball has traditionally been tone deaf about this shit, which is just, uh, being exceedingly high handed and, uh, kind of unthinking and uncaring about that stuff, except, in the places where it can sort of be used to buff the image. The thing with baseball that is complicated here is that it really is an American game. It is the American game, not necessarily in the sort of sepia sort of sentimental way that baseball likes to sell it. Like it's an American game in the sense that there's a ton of unresolved shit about race and a ton of exploitation sort of built into it. And that is not part of the official story and yet like inextricably a part of the experience of caring about the sport and the ways in which that has sort of irised out the ways that the, or not irised out, that's the wrong one. The the ways that it has sort of projected itself across the broader, like sort of scheme of the game, the way that for instance, that new of like populations to exploit and underpay has now expanded to include not just, the Caribbean and South America, but the Far East, that basically like it works like a microcosm of sort of shitty imperial capital in a way that uh, just happens to have like a really nice baseball sort of sports outdoor experience bolted on top of it. The way that race stuff traditionally has worked in baseball is uh, the way it's traditionally worked in the United States, which is restrictively. And making sure that the wrong people don't have access to uh, too much of the stuff that the right people get. What's changed with that over the years is, you know, and this is something, a point that Stephen Goldman, who I know you've had on, who's a friend of mine, has pointed out, is that baseball has been a way of basically making people American for as long as it's existed. That, like, immigrants, when baseball was considered sort of like a, you know, down-to-heel sport, that like you can see the waves of immigration into the United States reflected on the rosters of the sport, that there's Poles and there's Italians, there's Jews, that basically anybody who was someplace where like working a baseball job 
and like sort of striving in that way became a way to become a part of it, to become a part of the broader American story. It's always worked like that. It didn't really work like that very well for black Americans for a while it did. And now that we're in this sort of weird period of retrenchment and efficiency, baseball has become much whiter in the last few decades. And then also, as you pointed out, like not just a rich man's sport in terms of who is made rich by it in terms of owners and management and management consultant types, but it's become very expensive to play. And so that you see that the, like the larger percentage of American players now who are overwhelmingly white in a way that they weren't even 25 years ago are from places where you can play baseball all the time, which makes some sense. But they're also from place from families and from family situations where their parents can sort of fast track them for success, get them private coaching, put them on travel teams, pay tens of thousands of dollars to send them to play in tournaments. And that sort of thing has created like a different sort of conservative element to the sport that culturally, you know, if it's American, then it's reactionary in the ways that America is, but it's become sort of like a suburban sport that is grounded in the Southeast and in sort of Southern California, you know, Orange County, San Diego, it's like a great hotbed of this stuff and in Texas. And so you're, you know, while there are still cold weather prospects making it into the sport, like it really has become culturally conservative in a way that's like almost sort of Republican, which is to say like very aggrieved and very uh, in denial about. I feel that. like baseball is like that couple in St. Louis with their guns in front yeah. of their house. Yes. It's the gated community of sports. Right. Which is a bummer too, because it's the sort of thing where like there are things about baseball that make it harder to play than say basketball, right? Like you need more space, you need specialized equipment, whatever, but also like that worked in the past. It's like, but there's that, that wariness to it. And this can be another thing that turns people off about the game, that there is this kind of copish vibe to it culturally. There's all these like unspoken and unwritten rules and all of this kind of like weird like macho posturing, even by the standards of sports bullshit that just conspire to make the game less fun. And the league itself seems kind of unsure what to do about that. That like the players that are the young players that are like the coolest and the most fun to watch, the most stylish are, you know, unsurprisingly in many cases, people of color, but they are also people that the league is like very seemingly reluctant to promote because they're like a little uh, edgier than the league is comfortable with. And yet the guys, you know, Mike Trout, who's the best player in the sport and probably the best player of his generation. And it's like, it's just a very sort of rectangular, fairly, you know, vanilla white dude from New Jersey that like, so major league baseball complains that he's too boring, but then won't promote uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. Because he's like, uh, he might do something uh, that would offend their sort of imaginary audience. They put themselves in a position where it just sort of feels like, the game has gotten so narrow that the actual thing itself is spilling out around these sort of artificial walls that the, you know, ownership and like the league itself have imposed around it. And so it's in conflict with itself in a way that it can't quite come to grips with, which again is, you know, very American. 
It's amazing when you think about baseball historically, how it presents itself as sort of this, you know, uh, almost a beacon for progress, right? Jackie Robinson is not a baseball hero. He's an American hero, right? Baseball is sort of the emblem of, of progress. But in fact, I mean, if you really look at it, baseball is deeply reactionary and way behind the curve on all of these issues. And uh, so the question then really, I think, becomes, as you've seen black players in the game uh, dis disappearing and, you know, just a handful of prominent black players. You have also, of course, seen baseball really fail to address the social issues of, of the day. I mean, where was baseball on the Black Lives Matter issue? Where's baseball on the Me Too uh, movement? Baseball seemingly has failed even where other sports like the NBA and others have succeeded. Yeah. I mean, I think the caveat here, and it's it does not, I think, detract from your point, which is valid, is that the NBA understands its brand in a way that suggests that they would need to posture as if they were deeply concerned about that sort of thing. Because the NBA is an overwhelmingly black American league. And they understand that that is their audience, that it's younger people and it's people of color and it's people in cities. And so it's, while their goal is every bit, you know, to make money and their approach to it is every bit as red and tooth and claws, baseball ownership is they know that they need to say the right things about that. The NFL kind of gets it, but they're the NFL, so they never say the right things anyway. What is happening with baseball, and that's been kind of fascinating about it, is this attempt to both speak from that, in that kind of like voice of God way that baseball likes to communicate about itself in terms of being like, it's time for us to lead. And then just issuing a series of extremely vague and perfectly circular statements that it's impossible to generate any real response to. And that has been very disappointing as somebody who cares about this stuff, as you know, somebody who cares about the health of the sport. But it's also been kind of bizarrely thrilling to watch like how determined they are to sit this out. Like they really don't see a conflict at the highest level that Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball itself does not see a conflict between holding themselves out as being like America in sport form and just ignoring the things that have really like recently riven America, but also like are finally getting this kind of reckoning in the light that baseball is like, well, that's for you guys to work out. Like we're doing American stuff over here. And I don't know how they square that shit with themselves to be honest well it's like it's like trump you know what i mean trump targeted the nfl targeted the nba didn't give a shit about baseball it didn't yeah. come to throw out a first pitch nobody cared and it no it didn't even occur to anybody to think twice about it yeah i mean i think for him he i think that there's something damning buried in that too because trump's instincts such as they exist i mean like it, what they are are a bully's instincts he knows how to push on a bruise and so he goes where he thinks that there's leverage, right? So with the NBA, you can drag LeBron James and NBA players into something. And it's just sort of a, a plausibly deniable way of making like a crude race-based appeal about like black people and black people with money, especially. And with the NFL, he realized there that like he had the upper hand because his position in the same way it was in the primaries in 2016, that his position was more idiotic and more extreme, even than people who basically broadly agree with him. NFL owners are like, I mean, if you could make a, like a boat into a person, that is what like the ultimate Trump supporter is to me. And like 
several boats own NFL teams. Like Jerry Jones is a mega yacht in human form, right? And those guys, even they, he knew that just by being a bigger asshole than them, that they would never be able to get to his right. It worked for him when it worked. But with baseball, I think he maybe understood. And this is the only, baseball is the only sport he played as a kid. It's the only one he's really expressed like that level of like reverence for relative to this other shit. But even there, I think he just knew it wouldn't matter that there was nothing in it. And I guess in some ways you could say that MLB, you know, played it safe in that regard. But I think in general, he just, he knew where the energy was. There's like, there's there's no percentage in going after the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, and in that moment, uh, you know, especially last season, uh, you know, in the shortened season and in the in the wake of the George Floyd protests and everything else, you did see uh, prominent black players, Mookie Betts, among uh, among others, who spoke out in their clubhouses, who became sort of uh, publicly, you know, uh, sort of the public faces of, um, you know, the, the teams in speaking to this issue. But there really was no cohesive messaging and there certainly was nothing of substance in the way of addressing some of the inequalities facing you know uh baseball in the inner cities and other other issues like that so again we kind of are left with this very sour taste in our mouth that baseball kind of just doesn't give a fuck about anything yeah i think that that's the that is the the big takeaway from it because i think there are a lot of of black leaders in baseball and there and i think that there's also at this point a much more progressive like base of players in baseball than there would have been in the past that like players are way more comfortable even if it's something like the most empty gesture if it's wearing a black lives matter t-shirt during batting practice players will do that teams don't message on it don't push on it the league itself and this is goes back to your point about not really seeming to give a fuck about any of this stuff the biggest problem with baseball under Rob Manfred, who's been their commissioner for since Bud Selig left it. Selig was an owner. He cared about baseball a lot. Manfred was his hammer as an assistant uh, commissioner and became, you know, again, just more of a hammer as a commissioner of the sport. The thing that you notice the most about him and his statements about the sport and the proposed tweaks and everything is that he doesn't really seem to like it very much. He doesn't talk very much about, you know, it's always about trying to make games shorter, make them, uh, you know, in some ways, this idea that, you know, they, that makes them more appealing to younger people or whatever. But I think a lot of it is that it's just less baseball is better to him. And I think to a lot of the owners as well, that like, especially as teams sort of cycle out of being owned by, you know, rich weirdos from the community and become the province of investment groups as teams become so expensive that even the richest individuals can't buy them. That they're just another, you know, investment product. They're a thing that delivers seven percent instead of five percent. And if you don't value baseball itself as anything other than the thing that makes it possible to get that return, which I think that many owners and the some very important people at the league office don't value it that way, then you're going to neglect the league more or less on principle. That the sport, the health of the sport itself, won't really matter to you because, like it doesn't really have any bearing on you outside of what it does or doesn't return. There's something so utterly preposterous about the idea that people aren't watching baseball because it's three hours and not two hours and 45 minutes. That's exactly hitting me. It's so weird to me too. I mean, so many of these tweaks, it's like if some of it, you know, again, there's like disaster capital stuff where they're trying to like, you know, get rid of umpires and get rid of it. And that's, you know, a longer horizon hideousness, uh, 
that I think, you know, in the same way that like, you're never going to go into a restaurant where there's no people making your food. You're never going to go to a baseball game. Where there's not a person umpiring in some way or another, but the other shit, the idea that like shaving a few minutes here or there, or like tweaking something for the sake of tweaking it. I, I think that that's something that really betrays like, not just like a lack of faith in the game, but like a lack of interest in the game that like, I've never been to a baseball game where I was like, let's get this shit over with. You know, like the whole point of watching it is that you're like, you're signing on for something that's just like a lazy river attraction, you know, where uh, like some people spit and other guys like grab their dicks a lot and all that. But it's just like, it's not supposed to be fast. Like the tension comes when the tension comes. But if the, if the people involved don't understand it enough to care about it, then like, I don't know what deference fans would owe them. So people who talk about baseball are often fond of talking about, is baseball going to die? Is baseball going to die? Baseball needs to be resurrected and so forth. And it's obviously an, uh, uh, pretty much an annual event where we discuss if baseball is dead or not. So obviously I'm not going to ask you if baseball is dead, but does baseball have any chance of regaining any centrality in our national uh, uh, imagination um, given what media has become, given how diffuse uh, entertainment has become. Uh, it doesn't seem like baseball could ever regain that status. Could any single sport regain the status that baseball had in the yeah. mid 20th century? I think that's the answer that I was going to give there is that no, they won't, but also the NFL won't and also the NBA won't. And also like, you know, whatever we can talk about hockey, just to be polite. If <laughs> like, there's no way that that's going to work that I feel like that something that means that much at this point, like I really fear is just going to be politics and it's going to be the version of politics that we have, which is uh, like just a bunch of old rich assholes doing some version of the dozens to each other, like over and over and over again forever. That's not ideal either. Um, and I hope that people uh, stop wanting to watch it so much, but I think that like what baseball and with other leagues too, that like, there's they're going to need to figure out a way to serve the people that want to consume it that like it will grow the market for it will grow and in many cases it's that's going to mean you know internationally that's why the nba has been so kind of queasily willing to get down with china i mean they know that people in china and like care about basketball and i think that they're willing to let that dictate uh, some of their decisions. Major League Baseball doesn't quite have that, uh, although baseball is very popular in, uh, you know, Southeast Asia. There's more, like, I think the challenge that they have is the challenge that, like, every business is going to have, which is there are people that care about this. They They want to give you money to watch it. Like, and there's enough of them that you're going to be able to get these big TV contracts and you're going to be able to get streaming money. And that like, you can make a dollar and a cent as a baseball owner. The question then is, how do you give those people something worth paying for and worth caring about? And that's where I think the real challenge is in the league right now, because like owners don't give a shit about that. They don't like baseball. And if you don't like it, then there's no way that you're going to be able to not just improve it or improve its lot as an investment, but to care for it. And so all of the stuff that we talk about, all this short-sightedness in terms of not just like cheating in these sort of oafish ways, but like rolling up the minor leagues the way that they have, that all of that is the sort of thing that you do to save a dollar now and that makes the game weaker 
in ways that cannot even be fathomed a generation from now. And a generation from now, nothing is going to be as central as baseball was in 1950, which is fine. But baseball is still going to want to be a business that people care about. And I think that's where the idea of like a little bit of reverence, not for the stuff that baseball itself is necessarily reverent for, but reverence for what the game has meant and what it really does actually mean to people that pay attention to that and it's never going to go away and it's only going to ever shrink so much. If you wanted to try to grow it, there's definitely ways to do it. But I feel like at this point, it's just, there's a sense that their hands are just not on the wheel at all. And that is what makes me worried about the future prospects for it. And in many ways, one of the running themes of this conversation has been sort of the pernicious and rather insidious effect that uh, private equity and capital has had on baseball and on the institutions that we care and love about. And so uh, speaking of private equity's insidious impact on things we care about, uh, (laughs) can you talk to me a little bit about what uh, led you guys to start The Defector? I knew that that segue was coming. And yet as it was happening, it was just it was like the game slowed down. That was beautiful, man. Uh, Thank you. I practiced it. I wrote it on a three by five card. I kept it in my pocket all week. I was ready. It sounded right though. All right. So basically our experience with Defector, uh, I'll do the thumbnail thing. I worked at a site called Deadspin, uh, which was a sports and other thing website that uh, was originally part of the sort of gawker omni media thing and then was sued into precarity. And then uh, eventually like uh, due to some other mismanagement from again, uh, private equity backed uh, like takeover the the shell of Univision, which is now just basically a bunch of um, different private equity crews running a their own version of the Sopranos bust out sort of scam at different levels. We were sold to a private another private equity group called Great Hill, and uh, it was bad. Uh, they were you know real high handed and short sighted and, uh, forced a lot of people out, fired, uh, some people that we really cared about, um, seemingly just on principle because they were, um, they put the websites under the control of a guy who was, it's kind of a veteran spam website dude from two iterations of the internet ago who uh, didn't like us. It got to the point where it was clearly untenable for us. And we all, uh, quit on the same day, uh, which was Halloween of, uh, 2019, and we, uh, at that point, having all of us found ourselves unemployed at the same time, um, quite suddenly got to work on trying to find a way to, to sort of start a site together. And uh, we, we found that there were ways to do it through sort of the backing of a rich patron or cutting some sort of deal with an investor um, in which they would get a certain amount of control um, and set certain tiers in terms of what we'd have to hit in order to buy bits of art control and agency back. Um, the pandemic sort of short-circuited a deal that we'd been working on in that regard and sort of pushed us more in the direction uh, that we wound up going in, which was starting up as a worker-owned co-op and uh, charging people a subscription to read it, which is not exactly what we wanted to do. Um, I mean, it was always part of where revenue would come from uh, with advertising sort of collapsing in the industry, uh, a site like Deadspin, which really did run on clicks for ads, uh, just wasn't tenable anymore. Uh, we've succeeded with the subscription thing. We've got you know enough people to give us money that we have hit all our target salaries. Like 
we have good health insurance. Like my wife has a proper job and gets insurance through our plan because it's better than her workplaces. Like we've done a lot of that stuff right, but we're still also trying to figure out how to sort of to keep it going in the sense that like, we know that we've, you know, that's what I was saying before, like people are willing to pay to read it. We have to try to keep giving them what they want. But we also need to sort of, I think, broadly speaking, um, for all of us just to see, given the state of, of media itself, like I want to create a template in our experience that can then be used by other people that decide they want to do the same thing. Because the industry itself is being, it's not failing, like in the same way that, that baseball is not, that there is an audience. People want to read this stuff. Like that it's not an issue of people deciding that they'd rather look at Twitter than read in-depth stories. The issue is that it's become much harder to make money because of the broader hustle that is the like online uh, advertising space. And then also because private equity types or just rich people like the billionaire that shut down Medium earlier this week, that like those guys just don't value the things that we value, not just in terms of journalism, but like they like we're not trying to be a billion dollar company, right? Like we don't want to be ESPN. We don't want like TV rights. What we want is to be able to do our job with our friends, hire more people and pay ourselves reasonable salaries. And right now we're doing that. Like that is working, but that is, that is all that we want. (laughs) And that just seems anathema to the broader sort of private equity mindset where, you know, even if you find a thing that works, it could never work well enough for them unless it leads to a billion dollars and like a massive exit. And I just think that that's a, it's a pretty fucked up way to run a culture, broadly speaking, or an economic system, but it is a very bad way to run something like a journalistic enterprise, which can be run at a profit on a decent margin by somebody who's willing to satisfy themselves for doing that. And I don't think that that's what, uh, what certainly what rich individuals and definitely private equity are into. One of the things for me about Defector is that it really has an uh, unabashed take on a lot of these issues. The truth is that I I scan around on the internet and through all the different you know feeds and feed aggregators and all these different things that uh, you know that I follow to try to get all the stories that are sort of at the intersection of sports and politics and in depth sports uh, uh, related journalism. And honestly, it's pretty thin out there. Yeah. And Defector is so so needed in that space, and so I would obviously. I make my pitch to everybody to get your subscriptions to Defector along with your Counterpunch subscriptions. Oh, I agree. um, I would just ask you to help us and help the audience understand what kind of content they'll find there. Well, this is the part where, so that's all very nice of you to say. And I agree that there are fewer websites to get good sports writing or any kind of writing at, like entirely too few. This is where I have to be honest, that a lot of the stuff we run is really stupid. Um, But not stupid in a in a, a cruel way or in an egregious way. It's just we, there's a lot of silly posts on the site. There's also serious stuff about, you know, like we've done a lot of uh, sort of now that, again, we don't have to do like the click chasing, like covering highlights from sporting events, for instance. We've um, enabled our writers to do different stranger things. And it's turned out that like some of these people really care about science. Some of these people really care about literature. Some of them are very knowledgeable about politics. And what you have wound up with at at the site, I think is like, there's a decent amount of sports there, but it is not 
necessarily pegged precisely to the news cycle. You know, like big events are and stuff like that. But we'd be likelier to write about a player that we like trying to make a comeback than we would to like run down the favorites in the NL West. And I think that that's sort of manifest all up and down it in that like we're trying to do the best possible website that we can to have everybody writing the best stuff that they can write. And that is similar in some ways to Deadspin, but I think it's it's different in that like we're not bound to anything but giving every story our best shot at this point. So it's a mix of stuff. I mean, like you will learn things about sports there, but I think that a, a lot of the uh, the more personal and more idiosyncratic stuff that we've done like is what I'm proudest about. Like I think some of the best science journalism that I've read, the stuff that helped me understand, for instance, vaccination. I like some of the really good stuff that I've read has been like, on our site written by a guy that I personally have edited writing a joke about like not a joke, like writing a post about like how best to grill a burger. But it turns out he's like a really good person to interview epidemiologists because he cares and he listens. So I don't know. I'm proud of what we do. I have a hard time sort of summarizing it because like I, I love it too much, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, and sort of an eclectic uh, mix heavy on the sports um, and also on, yeah, just some, some goofy stuff as well. Definitely recommend it. Okay. A couple minutes left, David, I, I, I should probably let you go, but I'm not going to until no. I talk a little baseball with you. Yeah. Uh, New York Mets. What do you think this off season? Uh, disappointment, excitement. What are you thinking? Oh, it's all of them, Eric. <laughs> it's uh, I am excited in a way that I haven't been um, for the team in the past. I think mostly because well, it's new ownership, um, and you know they're they're owned by a unconscionably rich, prolific financial uh, criminal, which you know it's not what you want. But uh, they've been ambitious. You mean Chris Christie? You mean Chris Christie's wing, wingman? His yeah, his buddy. Like they probably. Uh, I guess that that would be the one thing I could talk to both of those guys about. If Steve Cohen also like listens to Springsteen sets from '78, I could talk to them both about like the nine-minute version of "Prove It All Night" from Passaic. Epic. Just. <laughs> So they're owned by there's a Republican turd from Long Island, but who is a fan of the team and really does seem committed to making them better. So they made moves that they didn't make when their previous owners, uh, who were always kind of strapped for cash and and seemed aggrieved at having to do anything, uh, they made moves that those teams wouldn't. So they Francisco Lindor is the new shortstop, is basically the the coolest dude in baseball. Like if they were serious about marketing the sport everybody in America would know who he is because he's beautiful and nice and good at the game. He was acquired in a trade from a team uh, that was dumping. And while the Mets didn't do any of the big free agency stuff that I wanted them to do, it's like all the stuff they did was triply pleasing to me because it was things that the previous ownership didn't do. Like there's actual minor league depth and there's major league depth. The way that they used to build before was like, if everything went perfectly, they would contend for a wild card. They'd win 85 games. And at this point, they just like, by trying a little bit harder than the other teams around them and by being willing to, you know, whatever, shoot their shot on some other stuff, like the floor is higher. And if things go wrong, as they always do during baseball seasons in general and Mets seasons extremely in particular, then like, I think they still got a chance. Like I expect to enjoy watching them all year long, which it's honestly fucking been a minute on that one. 
Are you similarly bullish? Because I know we were talking about this before we started that you've uh, you made the choice upon relocating out here to adopt the Mets lifestyle. How do you feel about it? Am I am I, I being feel, I, too negative, I, too positive? I think you're. I think you're being pretty accurate. I I would have liked to have seen them add one of the other top top flight free agents yeah, that, they, that they missed out on uh it seemed like i mean if you're gonna get some billionaire prick in there you might as well get his billions flowing but, that was how know. i felt about it too where i was just basically like this isn't the sort of redistributive economics that i want and yet at the same time like if you're not gonna like tax him at a very high level then like at least give some of it to george springer because he's good I know. Well, you know, and the thing too is that, like, I, I I look at the NL East and I'm like, I could easily see three of these teams winning this division. So, yeah. You know, so I'm sort of like, I don't think they did anything to put themselves really like out, you know, head and shoulders above anybody else. Right. The, I mean, the thing that I think they did to a certain extent to give themselves a better chance is that like, there's less of a chance that they're going to spend a month of the year running a triple A team out there, like they did in the past. That like there's that so that level of it like yeah I think they're pretty close to the Braves I think the Braves are in some ways probably better still but where the separation has happened in years past is that like when somebody gets hurt and every five days the Mets start a guy who just cannot win a major league game that's not going to happen to them this year and it never happens to the Braves so I'm I'm we'll also see where that goes. Yeah, I'm also sort of, uh, I, I also just, I, I don't like Nimmo in the outfield. It just, it seems weak. It's like you needed Springer. You needed all of that. I mean, you yeah. needed that outfield. You that's know what the, I mean? So. That's the the part of it that feels like, I mean, and it feels weird after all these years of getting like just austerity or whatever to like get a little bit of it. It feels silly to be like greedy and want more, but that's, I think that's basically it. That like Nimmo, he's perfectly fine. He's a good player, but like they're playing him out of position because they didn't make the decision to like get a better guy to play his position and then let him play where he should play and move everybody down the depth chart a bit. And like that, just that level of, of sort of pumping the brakes when it seemed um, the least necessary to do that felt just vintage Metsy enough that I, I kind of got a, a, like a fleeting intimation of doom, but then, you know, whatever it's like, there's just been a lot of fucking doom in the monitors, if I'm being honest, the last few months. So it's like, at some point, there is something more important to worry about than like signing Taiwan Walker instead of Jake Odorizzi. Another critical question over under the number is two over under two MLB managers involved in alcohol related hit and runs this season. Oh my God. <laughs> I hope it's under. Yeah, it is. Um, I think that like we're learning stuff about the way that managers are that I think I always sort of knew, you know, like if you read ball four, like, you know, that like they're like nude and drunk way more than you would want to imagine, like both of sometimes at the same time. But this has been a, a really great off season for finding out that these guys are also like prolific sexters. You know, like there's just like they're old scumbags, but they're really uh, like their games are pretty tight in terms of just being scumbags. Like it's not the old vintage thing where they're just like in a hotel bar, like gun and cigarettes. Like they're also uh, like they know how to use the cameras on their phones. And that's not great. I wish there were more like Wilford Brimley in the natural, but they're yeah. not. Yeah, that's I sort of. And what's weird is that the guys that were kind of like that, like Jim Leland or like these sort of like mustachioed crustoids that were like somehow 20 years long younger than they looked that used to be like that was like the baseline manager type again as with everything else they've been replaced with like 
physically fit ex players who like took their last major league at bat in like 2016. And yeah, like it does kind of make you miss like the old weirdos that are like, well, you know, like you got to bunt. Like that's the only way to get into heaven is bunting. Like getting replacing those guys with like just some CrossFit dude from Florida is like actually like a net loss aesthetically for the game. If we had more time, I would force you to do a remember uh, remember a guy, but we're not going to do that. We you don't, don't want to do you don't that. even want to do one. Oh, I give mean, me, give me an sh- angel from your youth. Oh my god. Uh, okay. Gary <laughs> DeSarcina. Yes. He's a Mets third base coach recently too. Oh, I remember Gary DeSarcina. Recent coach. That's not a good one. No, uh, he was Luis a, he was a legend. What would you say? Luis Polonia. Yeah. That's a guy. He's a Jerry Curl lifestyle influencer, uh, who also played outfield. <laughs> I remember him as a Yankee. He had like a weird sex creep, uh, thing in his, in his backstory. Uh, but somehow that didn't impact his career. It was a different time. I think most former angels have that in their backstory. Yeah, God, they've had a really, uh, which is strange. You know, you name the team that, and then you're just like, well, let's see if we can't straighten Chad Curtis out. It's a pretty powerful name. <laughs> and, Jesus uh, yeah. Christ. Didn't he murder somebody? He did not or- murder somebody. He Mel Hall maybe did. Chad Curtis was a prolific sex oh, creep, sexual, though, an right. evangelical sex, sex creep. creep. Yes, yeah. that's right. Well, a wonderful note, I think, to end this. Yeah, let's do it. Go, evangelical uh, sex creep. Hashtag evangelical sex creep when we, when we share this on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Hashtag evangelical. Let's get it All trending. Right. It's important. <laughs> David Roth has been with me. Should I, should I try to do it? Hey, Roth. That's, 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 that's how he's introduced on his podcast. The Drew podcast is, uh, I, I tried. I'm sorry, Drew. You're not listening. It doesn't <laughs> matter. The Distraction is the podcast. The Defector, Defector Media. Sorry, Defector Media is is the project. Go to Defector, get your subscription. It really is worth it. I promise you. Follow David on Twitter. He is great. David under or at David underscore J underscore Roth. David, thanks for coming on Counterpunch and chatting. Man, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I have been reading stuff at Counterpunch since I well, basically for half my life now. So it is very cool to uh, be involved even in this way. So thanks, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support and we will chat again real soon.